Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And in this particular episode, we have a variety of stuff for you. Cinematically, we have reviews of the very, very mildly oscar Beatty film, French Exit and the subversive slasher film, which has waited a very, very long time to come out, Freaky. On streaming platforms, we have the low-key American indie coming-of-age story, Once Upon a River, and the film which was released directly onto Sky Cinema, Kindred. And on Netflix this week, we have the true crime documentary, Murder by the Coast. And the first in this odd experimental series of slasher films, Fear Street Part 1, 1994. So a wide selection of stuff, even though we do have two teen slasher films as part of this show, but somewhat different. But anyway, an interesting show, and let's just get on with it now. Big Screen French Exit is directed by Azazel Jacobs, who is the son of legendary experimental filmmaker Ken Jacobs. Azazel Jacobs has a few feature films in his past, none of which have a very high profile. But this is an adaptation of a Patrick DeWitt novel, with the screenplay being written by Patrick DeWitt himself. Patrick DeWitt is a novelist who's probably best known for writing the novel The Sisters Brothers which was adapted for the screen a couple of years ago, starring John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix and Jack Gyllenhaal. It's a reasonably good effect. And Patrick DeWitt clearly has a long-standing friendship with Azazel Jacobs, because the last feature film that Azazel Jacobs made was a film called Terry, about a bullied teenage boy, which also happened to star John C. Riley. But the screenplay to Terry was co-written by Patrick DeWitt and Azazel Jacobs. And they've re-teamed again to adapt Patrick DeWitt's own novel about a Manhattan socialite played by Michelle Pfeiffer who seems to have a lavish and somewhat notorious lifestyle She's one of those people who's constantly in the gossip columns, 
everybody knows her for you know being famous, being this high society lady. But she is now flat broke. She has spent all her late husband's money and the banks are starting to corner her. So one of her friends, Susan Coyne, says, I've got a little flat in Paris, which I haven't been to for a very long time. It's just standing empty there. Why don't you and your son, Lucas Hedges, head off to Paris and hunker down and get out of the public eye? And Michelle Pfeiffer reluctantly agrees to this because she basically has no other options. And she drags her feckless son Lucas Hedges with her. Which complicates Lucas Hedges's already somewhat complex life because he is trying to work up the courage to tell his mother, Michelle Pfeiffer, that he is currently engaged to his girlfriend, Imogen Poots. And before he has the courage to tell Michelle Pfeiffer he's engaged, she's dragging him off to Paris, which obviously doesn't make Imogen Poots very happy, and without really saying it, it looks like the engagement's off. So, Michelle Pfeiffer, this feckless, irresponsible socialite, and her cowardly, ineffectual son head off to Paris, where they meet a variety of characters. A medium they actually meet on the cruise ship, played by Danielle MacDonald. A French private investigator, played by Isaac de Bancole. And another lonely, aging American expat living in Paris, played by Valerie Mahaffey. And when eventually Imogen Poots and Susan Coyne also show up in this tiny French apartment in Paris, a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of chosen family dynamics start occurring. So how will this affect the floating through life of this former famous socialite? And I was interested in in this film. I mean, this was one of the films that was listed on the Gold Derby lists of Oscar potential that I was actively trying to find and I didn't manage to find through extra legal means before my Oscar deliberations. It was listed in multiple categories. Michelle Pfeiffer in particular was considered a strong contender for Best Actress. In real life, she did get a Best Actress award in the musical and comedy category of the Golden Globes. So she was a legit Oscar contender for Best Actress, or it certainly seemed to be. So I was actively trying to find French Exit, and it was the only film I was actively looking for, which I did not manage to find before my Oscar deliberations. So when I saw that it was actually finally getting a legal release here in the UK, I did make the effort to go over to Bristol and see it. And it's a curious little film. I'm not sure 
I agree with the statement that you need to have a quote-unquote likeable protagonist in order to have a good film. I do believe it is possible to have a film with a totally selfish, totally amoral protagonist, and it's still to come across as entertaining. And that's clearly what French Exit was trying to do, but personally speaking, I don't think it entirely worked. Michelle Pfeiffer is so self-absorbed, is so selfish. She is openly irresponsible. She's demonstrating toxic privilege at every corner. She is browbeating her son, Lucas Hedges, until he just blindly follows his mother to Paris, despite the fact it means he's essentially breaking up with Imogen Poots, who he claims to love, he claims to want to marry. But he is so used to just living in his mother's orbit that he follows his mother without question. And Michelle Pfeiffer just doesn't seem to recognise that this is what's going on. And it's sometimes difficult to support or, or to care about this character. I think Michelle Pfeiffer does play it very, very well. What she is being asked to do, she pulls off remarkably well. This is the best Michelle Pfeiffer performance I've seen in a very, very long time. Not to the level of an Oscar nomination, in my opinion. I wouldn't have included her in my personal Oscar deliberations. Possibly, maybe, I would have given a supporting actress nomination to Valerie Mahaffey, who is very funny as this mousy, lonely American widow who's living in Paris and just desperately wants a friend and will do anything to get in the orbit of this famous Manhattan socialite and stay in the orbit of this famous Manhattan socialite. And she's rather sweet and rather adorable. I do really like the performance of Valerie Mahaffey. But I don't think I would have given Michelle Pfeiffer a Best Actress nod for this role. Largely because it is so self-indulgent, so self-involved. There's nobody in this film, I mean literally nobody in this film, who has a seemingly active level of emotional maturity. Basically everybody is driven by their selfish wants, their selfish needs, and doesn't really care how it fits in with everybody else, which makes the dynamics when everybody is crammed into this tiny French apartment towards the end of the film. It makes those scenes rather entertaining with everybody at cross purposes, everybody piling across on top of each other. It's a relatively small apartment, so there's not really enough room for everybody to sleep comfortably. So how do you pair up in that situation? Particularly when you know Imogen Poots shows up and you know can I get away with sleeping with my ex? You know sleeping in the same bed as my ex. It does create some rather interesting dynamics in that sense, but really, these are just pretty unlikable characters. 
then the film itself, and I'm presuming this is in the original novel as well by Patrick DeWitt, but the film asks us to go down a path which I really wasn't comfortable with, I really wasn't prepared for, and in my opinion doesn't necessarily fit with the kind of comedy of manners approach that the film has otherwise had. Because there is one element of this film which seems to suggest a genuine, legitimate level of supernatural involvement. One of the quote-unquote quirky things that Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges do is they constantly have this black cat around them. Neither of them particularly seem to like the cat, but they always, always have the cat with them to the extent that the cat travels with them on this cruise ship across the Atlantic. And by the way, this is the second recent film, or certainly the second film in this Oscar season, which involves Lucas Hedges on a transatlantic cruise ship which is a really weird and really specific thing, because Lucas Hedges is also in the Steven Soderbergh-directed Meryl Streep-starring film Let Them All Talk, which still hasn't got a UK release, but is pretty good. I mean, it's not classic Soderbergh, but yeah, weird. Lucas Hedges on a transatlantic cruise ship in two different films within months of each other. Very, very strange. But anyway, Lucas Hedges and... Michelle Pfeiffer, always have this black cat with them. And it eventually emerges that the reason they have this cat is because they believe that the soul of their dead husband and father, Tracy Letts, who appears in a vocal performance in a couple of scenes, and also as a still dead figure in one scene, but Tracy Letts is the father, and they believe that the soul of Tracy Letts is in this cat. And that's the reason that they are constantly having this cat with them, even though they don't particularly seem to like it. And even though they had to smuggle it through French customs by drugging it to sleep in the handbag. And eventually, we as an audience are also invited to believe the fact that this cat is inhabited by the spirit, by the soul of Tracy Letts. And as far as I was concerned, that was just one step too far. Those scenes which seem to have a genuine supernatural element to them just do not fit with the rest of the film. With this comedy of manners this idea of the socialite trying to find a new path in life. Michelle Pfeiffer literally says towards the beginning of the film, and you hear it also in the trailer, I was hoping to die before the money ran out. And that's what she aimed to do and didn't quite manage it. I mean, she sort of like failed at Brewster's Millions. So seeing this character mature and develop a little bit but honestly not very much is what we're clearly here for seeing how these diverse cast of characters interact with each other in very very close quarters that's kind of interesting 
And that's what the film is and what it should be. I mean, and also being a film about toxic privilege. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer at various points plays off what seems to be genuine mental illness as quote-unquote eccentricity. I mean, the idea, I think, is suggested that when you are rich, you can get away with pretty much anything, and that's what Michelle Pfeiffer has done throughout her entire life, or at least once she became rich when she married banker Tracy Letts. Exploring this toxic privilege, this toxic character, and how she interacts with the world, that's okay, I guess. That's what the film should be. But then we have two scenes where genuine supernatural stuff seems to be happening it it just didn't fit for me it it didn't work in the context of the film and suddenly we're in a very different film in a very different intention and it just didn't work for me so yeah the acting is good particularly from michelle pfeiffer and valerie mahaffey The script has its interesting moments and its interesting ideas that it raises, but ultimately I'm not really sure that French Exit entirely worked. It's not a complete wash, I I was mildly entertained, mildly diverted, so for me, French Exit, which is out now in cinemas, is a low meh. Next up, we finally have the cinematic release of the subversive teen slasher film, Freaky. This has been on the shelf for at least a year. I started seeing trailers and posters for this close to two years ago now. I think it was supposed to come out last spring, but it never managed it because of the world breaking. But now it is finally out, and we finally get to see this subversive take on the slasher film from a director who already has a subversive take on the slasher film. Freaky is written and directed, or co-written, by Christopher Landon, whose previous film was Happy Death Day, and Happy Death Day to You. And while Happy Death Day was Groundhog Day, but a teen slasher film, Freaky is Freaky Friday, but a teen slasher film. In which a serial killer who is part real-life bad guy and part urban legend, the Blissfield Butcher, played by Vince Vaughn, is going on his annual murder spree around homecoming in this leafy, suburban, small town. But when he gets his hands on a particular ancient dagger and tries to attack his latest victim, played by Catherine Newton, who is the geeky, bullied, shy girl who, on football games, is not one of the cheerleaders, not one of the popular kids. She's the one inside the giant beaver mascot costume. And the fact that the mascot of this high school football team is the beavers is no accident. But anyway, she's 
the lowest rung on the social totem pole. But she's alone after the latest football game, still in the beaver costume, so she's prime pickings for this serial killer with this weird knife. But in the light of the full moon, when this dagger stabs Catherine Newton, something really weird starts to happen. And the next morning, Catherine Newton wakes up in the body of Vince Vaughan. And Vince Vaughan wakes up in the body of Catherine Newton. So suddenly, this six foot five dirty man has to convince Catherine Newton's friends, her black best friend Celeste O'Connor and her gay best friend Misha Osharovich, that no, I am not this six foot five monster who's on all those wanted posters. I'm actually your friend. And equally, Catherine Newson is going around with a vampy new makeover, wanting to stab all her classmates, and indeed her teachers. One of the teachers being played by Alan Ruck, which is very odd casting. But yes, can the bodies get swapped back? They have 24 hours to do this, otherwise the switch will be permanent. And will Catherine Newson's consciousness be inside the bliss-filled butcher for the rest of time, or at least until he is executed by the state? Happy Death Day was a lot of fun. I did really enjoy it. And indeed, Happy Death Day to You was pretty good as well, even though that's somewhat in a different genre. So when I saw that Christopher Landon was doing a similar thing, but with Freaky Friday, I was very, very curious about it, and I have been waiting to see this film for literally over a year. And it didn't disappoint. This is, similarly to Happy Death Day, a lot of fun. It has some subversive moments. It has very gory and very inventive kills. Some of them are totally impractical and wouldn't actually happen in real life, but they're really cool and visually very clever. The only lesson we see Catherine Newson, whether she is Catherine Newson or whether she is being inhabited by Vince Vaughan, the only lesson we see her spend any time in is the shop class with teacher Alan Ruck. And it is never outright said, but the implication is that the only reason that Catherine Newson is taking this shop class is because it allows her to spend time on the boy she has a massive crush on, played by Uriah Shelton. And the teacher, Alan Ruck, is actually actively mean to her because she's not really trying that hard in this class. But even so, he's very mean to her. And it's convenient that this is shop class and that there is therefore a giant circular saw in the middle of class. And this is a slasher film. And I'm just going to leave it at that. So yes, there are some kills which you absolutely see coming. But equally, there are some kills that you don't see coming. Some of the methods used are very, very inventive, very strange. 
and I have genuinely never seen done before. And they also make it very, very clear that the high school students who do end up dead, to some degree, deserve it. I mean, the mean girl, bitchy queen bee of campus who denigrates Catherine Newson for no particular reason. She ends up dead. And later in the film, there's a scene I am somewhat conflicted by, in which at a party, Catherine Newton, who at the time is being inhabited by the soul of Vince Vaughn, is lured off on her own by a boy, one of the members of the football team. And then two other boys emerge out of the shadows. So they're isolated one girl and three football players. And, yeah, bringing up rape culture in a film like this is, I think, a valid thing to do. It was done to brilliant effect in Black Christmas, the recent remake of Black Christmas. But raising it in a film like this, where you do not have the time or the space to fully address that situation. I mean, this is the start of a gang rape scene. And obviously, because it's actually Vince Vaughn in the middle of this, these potential rapists end up bloodily murdered and good riddance. So that's you know, a legitimate comment upon these characters. But raising a scene like that, having a scene saying rape culture exists, these boys are toxic, and they have been toxic throughout the course of the film. They've been bullying her in mild ways and making crude comments about Catherine Newton throughout the entirety of the film. So, to some degree, they deserve it. But having a scene like that, and then not discussing it, not addressing it fully, I, I think there was a, a missed opportunity there. But good riddance to these potential rapists who get dispatched with in incredibly gory ways. And it is a film which does have other modern twists to it. I mean, when Vince Vaughan has convinced Catherine Newton's best friends that, yo, it's Catherine Newton in here, the gay best friend says he will do something, and Celeste Iconna immediately says pronouns, which is you know, a very 2020, 2021 thing to say. And there's another line where Mishra Shorovich says, I'm gay, you're black, we are so dead. I mean, having moments here and there sprinkled around to comment upon the slasher genre, to subvert the slasher genre. But more than anything, while there are moments of satire, moments which make comments upon the slasher movie, it's just a really fun, really inventive version of that same movie. It's not trying to do anything really subversive. I mean, yes, the whole body swap thing is pretty new. I've never 
quite seen a body swap slasher film like this before, I don't think. But having those moments here and there does work. But more than anything, it's just really fun, really gory, really inventive, and a lot of fun. I mean, both Catherine Newton and Vince Vaughn are very, very good at inhabiting the other characters. I mean, Vince Vaughn is surprisingly convincing as a teenage girl, including one scene where Vince Vaughn kisses Catherine Newton's crush, Uriah Shelton. And yeah, all right, fair enough. A a moment of gender fluidity. I mean, I'm kissing the soul, not the actual physical body. I mean, fluidity, all that kind of stuff, fine. But do that, but then to not address the fact that this six foot five serial killer is kissing a teenage boy. Maybe have a, a little discussion about that. Maybe have a little comment about that, possibly. But either way, Vince Vaughn playing a teenage girl and Catherine Newsom playing a homicidal maniac both do it very, very well and both are inhabiting the other role perfectly. So, yeah, it's fun. It works. It's entertaining. It's not massively, massively original past the original high-concept Genesis. But Freaky is still very, very entertaining. I do recommend it. And for me, Freaky at the cinemas is a high meh. Home movies. Recently, there was another random sale on the Google Play Store. And I took the opportunity to rent a number of streaming films I was interested in. And the first one I watched was Once Upon a River which was initially released a couple of months ago onto Curzon Home Cinema, but has now spread out onto more generic streaming platforms. It is based on a novel by Bonnie Jo Campbell and is written and directed by Harula Rose, who has a handful of tiny features and shorts in her background but also has a very long CV as a singer-songwriter, and her music has been licensed to numerous films as well. This particular film is set in rural Michigan in 1977 where a 15-year-old Native American girl, or part Native American girl, Kennedy Della Serna lives with her father in a small factory town in rural Michigan. Her father is the illegitimate son of the founder of the town, and he lives next door to his white half brothers who still kind of run this town. But this bastard native son of the town founder is not truly a part of the family, truly part of society. But everybody puts up with them. A series of misadventures, particularly involving this 15-year-old native girl, Kennedy Della Serna, and her white uncle who lives next door 
Coburn Goss after some uncomfortable interactions between this 15-year-old girl and her uncle and the misunderstandings that follow, Kennedy Della Serna runs away up the river in a little boat. Her father has trained her to live in the woods, you know, hunting, fishing, that kind of thing. So she runs away up the river with the intention of finding her white mother who ran away to find herself when Kennedy Della Serna was a little girl. So this 15-year-old Native American girl travels up the river hoping to find and reconnect with her mother and meeting various people along the way and growing up along the way as well. And that's basically what this film is. It's a film which doesn't have any great dramatic incident apart from this uncomfortable interaction between this 15-year-old girl and her uncle. The way that I think Kennedy Della Serna would read it is, you know, I am naive enough to follow my uncle into these compromising situations. But I'm sure with a bit more perspective, and certainly we as an audience would say that this is a girl who is naive enough to be groomed by her uncle into compromising situations. And then the fallout from this, from this uncomfortable scene, which we see a little bit of, I mean, it's nothing particularly graphic, but we know exactly what's happened. And the fallout from that, the tragic fallout from that, means that Kennedy Della Serna goes on this journey upriver and meets various people along the way. A Native American man who is travelling down the, all the rivers he can find from you know, up in Canada down to Oklahoma. And the interactions that Kennedy Della Serna has with this Native American man. I mean, when he asks what tribe you from, Kennedy Della Serna doesn't actually know. She's just a native. I mean, she's been assimilated into this small Michigan town. And you know, she's too native for the white population and she's too white for the native population. There, there is no tribe, there is no community which she was ever a part of because she is the granddaughter of that native whore who slept with the town's founder. So I mean, she doesn't have anywhere to belong and this is a search for finding somewhere to belong, desperately searching for a place to call home when there isn't really a place to call home. And eventually ending up with a crotchety old white guy who's dying of emphysema, played by John Ashton. And this very, very unlikely partnership, this unlikely friendship. These are people who they needed at that particular time. I mean, this 15-year-old native runaway needed this old dying man and this old dying man needed this 15 year old native runaway and they form a bond they form a connection which is incredibly unlikely but that's what happened and finding a place trying to find something that you can belong to somewhere you can call home is basically what this film boils down to 
And it, it's done in a very gentle way. It's done in a very quiet way. There's no big dramatic moments. There's no horrifying revelations or anything of that nature. Eventually, we do find the mother, and you know, everybody along the way has said, I mean, why are you searching for your mother? She abandoned you. I mean, and it struck me that this was a very 1970s thing to do. I mean, this woman leaving to find herself. And the fact that it is set in 1977 allows for some other stuff, like there's a lot of talk between this Native American man and Kennedy de la Serna saying, yeah, the rivers are so polluted that how can you fish anyway? There's obviously no cell phones either. And there's also some legal stuff from the 1970s, which I won't necessarily go into because it's a spoiler, but I think that particular subplot would have been handled differently 10, 20 years further along in history. So, yeah, it's a quiet, sedate, gentle film, which doesn't necessarily come to any strong conclusions. I mean, I had a somewhat interesting experience. I mean, my mother asked me, did it have a happy ending? And that made me pause. That made me think for a moment because it's the kind of film where that's not really the right question to ask. And thinking about it, I mean, the the answer I came up with is that there is a level of contentment by the end of the film. But whether or not that's actually happy is very much up for debate because yes there is a level of contentment there is a level of stability but it's still going to be really really hard work for kennedy de la Serna. so is that happy i mean is it as happy as you can possibly get you know being a 15 year old native girl essentially on your own in rural michigan in 1977 is that how you would classify being happy? I'm not sure, but whatever it is, I, I, I think there is something there. So, yeah. A quiet, sedate film, which doesn't really have any true direction, have any true stakes, but is very well handled. And yes, it is a little bit uncomfortable that this is a film about a Native American protagonist, and the filmmaker is of Greek heritage, and the actress, Kennedy de la Serna, is of Hawaiian heritage. So this is not a story being told by the people it is about, which I think is becoming increasingly important in the modern day. I mean, the other Native characters in the film... Kennedy Delisana's father and this handsome young native man she meets along the way are both native actors. So, I mean, that's a tiny bit of an issue. But, yeah, it's a competent, interesting, mildly meandering film, but perfectly acceptable at what it is trying to do. So, for me, Once Upon a River, available through streaming platforms, is a solid. Next up, we have the small-scale British horror film, 
Kindred. Written and directed by Joe Marcantonio, who has a couple of shorts in his past, but this is his feature-length debut. And it is a very small-scale film with a very limited cast and a very limited number of locations. One of those films that makes a lot out of having very limited resources, but has managed to get a quite impressive cast together. A young couple, Tamara Lawrence and Edward Holcroft, are living in a somewhat isolated rural area and are planning to emigrate to Australia. Much to the horror of Edward Holcroft's mother, Fiona Shaw, who lives in a crumbling country manor house and is determined that the family line shall remain in this house. A family line which is unexpectedly going to be continuing because Tamara Lawrence unexpectedly and somewhat unwantedly becomes pregnant. And while she is dealing with this and dealing with the meddling of her mother-in-law, Fiona Shaw, and her husband's stepbrother, Jack Loudon, trying to figure out what to do, whether they can still go to Australia, can they still go to Australia over the objections of Fiona Shaw, Edward Holcroft is in an accident and dies. Grief-stricken and now noticeably pregnant, Tamara Lawrence is ferreted away in this crumbling country house where Fiona Shaw and Jack Loudon are saying, you know, we will take care of you, we will take care of the baby. There's nothing you need to worry about. But the more time goes on, the more Tamara Lawrence becomes concerned that she is essentially a prisoner in this country house by her mother-in-law and her partner's stepbrother. And the doctor who is taking care of them is the local GP, Anton Lesser, who has Fiona Shaw's best interests at heart, not her best interests at heart. So can this frightened, grief-stricken, and also potentially hallucinating young woman escape the country house which she has essentially been trapped in? And that seemed like a fairly standard setup, but it did intrigued me and when i saw that it was a sky original movie it's been released directly onto sky cinema i thought okay i may as well click the button and watch it and when i saw it i thought okay this is going to be a film which has some racial overtones because tamara lawrence is black and the rest of the family you know the family she has married into actually I think that Edward Holcroft was her husband, but it's never actually said. I mean, her partner, Edward Holcroft, who she's about to emigrate to Australia with. I mean, this crumbling country house with this crumbling country family determined that 
the family line shall stay, the family line shall remain. It seemed to me that there would be some racial overtones to it. But to give the film credit, I think that is a very, very minor, I mean, a minuscule part of this film. I think if Tamara Lawrence had been white, it basically would have been exactly the same film because this is not a film about race. It is not a film about the upper classes being disappointed or disapproving of a black face coming into the family. This is a textbook example. This is a classic example of gaslighting. Somebody being told, you don't know what's going on. You are crazy. We will take care of you. We will take care of the baby. Think of the baby. Think how your silly attitudes are going to affect the health and well-being of the baby. Oh, yes, look at this doctor. He says that you need bed rest. He's giving you mysterious pills crushed up in your tea without telling you what's going on. Yes, uh, it's such a shame that your phone got broken and cannot be repaired. And, of course, we need to lock you in overnight because we don't want you wandering off because you're having these hallucinations, aren't you? which aren't at all related to the pills that have been crushed up in your tea. I mean, this is classic textbook gaslighting. And on those terms, I think this is a film which does work. I think the issue comes, and this film has not been getting particularly good reviews, the issue comes when what the structure is, what the, the framework of this film is, is a psychological thriller about gaslighting, about this family who is determined to keep going, who is determined that this baby shall be born and we shall have control of this baby. I mean, it very much, you know, fall of the House of Usher kind of thing, you know, this dying on the vine aristocratic family or, or certainly landed gentry family and the desperate need to keep, you know, the tenth generation shall live in this house. I mean, it's very much that. And, and that psychological thriller framework is fine, and if they'd focused entirely on that, I think Kindred would have been a much better film. But instead, we have all this extra stuff put on top of it. We have the fact that Tamara Lawrence is hallucinating. We have the fact that, through context, we understand that Tamara Lawrence's mother also had mental health issues. So when we have the recurring motifs of these hallucinations, I mean, there's no accident, it's no mistake, that almost all the posters that I've seen for this film, Kindred, involve crows and magpies. That is a recurring motif of these you know, harbingers of death. I mean, are the crows actually there, or is she hallucinating them? There's also a, a brilliant sequence of a of starlings as well. So, I mean, these 
ominous birds are constantly there. And that puts a much more supernatural bent on this film, which I think is over-egging the pudding. I think it's gilding the lily a little bit too much for my tastes. If they had stuck with the psychological aspects of this, the gaslighting aspects of this, the idea that this family has trapped me. I mean, yes, every single individual thing makes sense. It's perfectly natural, perfectly understandable, perfectly reasonable. But put them all together and, oh shit, I'm a prisoner. And that psychological toll, I think, would have been the correct way to go. And it would have had the ending of this film would have had so much more impact if we'd fully focused on the psychological aspects of this. I mean, as it is, the ending of this film is pretty damn horrifying, and it's all the more horrifying because of just how plausible it is. And when you have the level of reality, the, le- the reaction that this could actually happen, this might actually be happening, in certain situations right now. I mean, a woman completely at the mercy of her partner's family, isolated in the middle of nowhere in this crumbling house, with the only contact with the outside world being this doctor who is in on the imprisonment, if you want to call it the imprisonment. How easy it is to do this. How simple it is to twist things and manipulate things. So you are essentially imprisoning this woman and nobody notices and nobody can do anything about it. I mean, that is total horror in and of itself. So when you also try to say, by the way, we're hallucinating crows, I don't think it works anymore. I think you're over-egging the pudding. And yeah, pick a lane. If Joe Marcantonio had picked a lane, either made it a psychological thriller about gaslighting, or a supernatural thriller, oh look, we're hallucinating crows, one or the other might have been better than what we actually get, which is a blending of the two and an inelegant blending of the two, which ultimately I don't think quite works. But the acting is excellent. I mean, Fiona Shaw is always really good value for money. It's really good to see her on screen. I must admit, I'm not very familiar with Tamara Lawrence. Apparently, she was in one of Steve McQueen's small acts films. I mean, she was also in No Offense, the uh, subversive cop show. Don't remember seeing her in that. But yeah, I mean, I'm not massively familiar with Tamara Lawrence, but she's very, very good. But yeah, it's a blending of stuff which doesn't quite work together. So for me, Kindred didn't end up quite working, but there's enough good stuff, particularly the ending, which I do think works. And I do think it's just about worth watching. I mean, if you have a skybox, you can just press the button and watch it. And on those terms, I think Kindred is perfectly acceptable. And for me, it was a solid meh. Netflix and chill. The first Netflix film I saw last week was the Spanish true crime documentary Murder by the Coast, which tells the story of a horrific 
miscarriage of justice, which happened disturbingly recently. In 1999, a 19-year-old girl named Rossio Waninkov disappeared in a small town close to Malaga. Because she was a quote-unquote good girl, an attractive 19-year-old, a media frenzy instantly started when she went missing. But unfortunately, by the time her body was found, it had already decomposed so much that very little evidence could be found, and the Guardia Civil were spinning their wheels. And it started to become noticeable that the Guardia Civil were spinning their wheels, so over a year later, they arrested on very, very flimsy evidence the lesbian lover of Rossio Waninkoff's mother. She was portrayed as a predatory lesbian who was jealous of Rossio Waninkoff and blamed her for the breakup of the relationship between Dolores Vazquez, this woman who was arrested, and Rossio Waninkoff's mother. And apparently this jealous rage was enough for Dolores Vazquez to murder Rossio Waninkov. So she was tried and convicted on virtually no evidence over a year later than when Rossio Waninkov disappeared. As the appeals process started for this clearly kangaroo court, a second murder of a young woman occurred in Coen, which was about 30-odd kilometres inland from La Cala, where Rossio Waninkoff disappeared, and DNA connected this disappearance to evidence which was found at Rossio Waninkoff's murder scene, but was not presented at court. And suddenly, oh shit, this murder is connected to Rossio Waninkoff's and we've arrested and convicted the wrong woman. And this naturally became a huge scandal in Spain, where they essentially railroaded somebody for being a lesbian. And this happened in 1999. It's just astonishing how this went down. It was a combination of a total media frenzy, I mean, blanket media coverage of this attractive young woman disappearing and eventually showing up dead, and the homophobic attitudes, which still exists in the machismo laden culture of Spain. But if you go by the evidence that was put against Dolores Vazquez, it just doesn't stand up. I mean, the big piece of evidence was somebody witnessing her stabbing a picture of Rossio Waninkoff. But the explanation for that was very simple. I mean, the person who was a witness was a Russian housekeeper 
who didn't speak a great deal of Spanish, and Dolores Vasquez was saying Rocio got stabbed, so it was a demonstration. That was the big thing which got Dolores Vasquez arrested, and you know, she fit the profile of the predatory lesbian. You know, she was so jealous of Rocio Wenninkoff that she needed to die because you ruined my relationship with your mother. Despite the fact the relationship had been over for four years by the time Rocio Wenninkoff was dead. So to wait four years and then wreak bloody vengeance? Really? And at the scene of Rocio Wenninkoff's murder, there was a cigarette butt. Crucially, an English cigarette butt, which had DNA on it. There were plastic bags which Rossio Wenninkoff was wrapped in, which had partial fingerprints on it. There were tyre tracks near the body of Rossio Wenninkoff. And none of these things, not the DNA, not the partial fingerprints, and not the tyre tracks, could be connected in any way to Dolores Vazquez, and yet she was convicted. And then when Sonia Carabantes showed up dead in Coin, the DNA found at Sonia Brigantes' murder scene matched this cigarette butt, and suddenly, oh shit. And it emerged that the murder of both girls was an English expat living on the Costa del Sol, who in England was a serial rapist who went by the name of the Holloway Strangler and had somehow slipped through the net and managed to escape to the Costa del Sol where he'd started a completely new life and actually had a daughter with another English expat. So, yeah, it was a big, big clusterfuck and Dolores Vasquez was convicted because she was a lesbian. And to this day, Dolores Vasquez has not had any compensation. She's not even had an apology for the nearly two years she was in prison for a crime she categorically did not and could not have committed. I mean, even before the trial started, the Guardia Seville said there is no physical evidence against Dolores Vasquez, but we're going to prosecute her anyway because. They needed a scapegoat. They needed to lynch somebody, and it may as well be this predatory lesbian. I mean, the media frenzy, the circus surrounding this case, when a quote-unquote good girl goes missing or ends up dead, there is an instant media frenzy. I mean, it has parallels to another notorious case in Spain, which is also the subject of a Netflix documentary, The Alcacer Murders, where three teenage girls were brutally tortured and murdered, and that became a media frenzy as well. And one of the perpetrators to this day, as far as I'm aware, still has not been caught, even though there seems to be strong suspicions that he's actually dead. But trial by media and the media frenzy which surrounds this kind of case is what ultimately I think this documentary is about. I mean, there is so much media coverage that it was actually caught on newsreel footage of you know, a news camera was outside the house at the time. 
you get to see and more crucially hear the moment that Rossio Waninkoff's mother is told that her body has been found. There were media cameras there to capture that moment, uh, and that's just going too far. And interestingly, there's pictures of that moment as well, and Dolores Vasquez is right next to the mother. So, yes, she was murderously vengeful about Rossio Wenninkoff, and yet she's sat next to and supporting her mother. So, the fact that there was so much publicity and somebody needed to be arrested, somebody needed to be convicted, and almost two years after the disappearance, they eventually decide, oh, we may as well just prosecute Dolores Vasquez on no evidence. And the fact that this all happened in 1999 to 2002-ish is just horrifying. The fact that it is in such recent memory is really, really fascinating. I mean, this is a decent enough documentary. I mean, it is, from the outset, both in English and Spanish, Primarily, the audio is in Spanish, but one of the talking heads is Nick Ross from Crime Watch, which was very curious because you know the guy who actually did it, Tony Alexander King, actually appeared on Crime Watch once when he raped an au pair in Leatherhead, and that was you know appearing on Crime Watch was what made him disappear to the cost of the Del Sol in the first place. So Nick Ross is a talking head on this, and there's all the subtitles, all the information, you know, who this person is comes up in Spanish and in English throughout the course of the film. It has been done with both languages in mind. And I think it's done very, very well. I mean, it's one of those jaw-dropping situations where you cannot believe that this happened. You cannot believe this happened this recently. And it shows just how flawed the criminal justice system is throughout the course of the entire world, particularly where you have media involved and when you have homophobia involved. And yeah, it's a fascinating and aggravating documentary. I do recommend it. And for me, Murder by the Coast is a solid meh. The last film I want to talk about in this particular show is perhaps the biggest release this week onto Netflix, and that is Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Based on R.L. Stein's very successful series of Fear Street teen horror books, and the first of a trilogy of films which has been released onto Netflix. Initially, apparently, this was supposed to be a cinematic release done by 20th Century Fox. The idea being that this trilogy of feature-length R-rated horror movies would be released cinematically one after the other once a month. Which seems like a really strange proposition. I think Netflix is the absolute perfect format for this kind of thing with three interconnected full-length feature films and on netflix they're really being released one a week the second one is being released this coming friday as i'm recording and i'm going to be watching that as well so yeah uh, one of those situations where attending up on netflix is actually 
ultimately a benefit, I think, rather than a problem. But thanks to the pandemic, the cinematic release of this was shelved, and of course, Disney buying 20th Century Fox. So it's ended up on Netflix, and I think ultimately that's going to be to the benefit. And this is not adapting any specific novels in the Fear Street series, which runs to something like 156 books. I mean, R.L. Stein was phenomenally productive at his peak. I mean, releasing basically a book a month. I mean, how he kept up that pace, I do not know. But it's not based on any specific Fear Street books, but and I do not know this for sure because I haven't read any of these Fear Street books, but it seems to me that the director, Lee Janiak, and her partner and co-writer, Phil Grazadei, found a way to put plots from many different Fear Street books into this film and found a reasonably clever way of doing it. As the title suggests, we are in 1994 in the town of Shadyside, which is a poor, deprived town and has the reputation of being the murder capital of the United States. And it is right next door to Sunnyvale, where... The standard of living is one of the highest in the world, and there are no murders ever. So the worst place to live in the world, right next to the best place to live in the world. And one of these shady side residents, Kiana Madeira, is mourning the end of her relationship with Sam. And is gathering up all their belongings, packing them up in order to give them back to Sam. And at the rival high school football game between Shadyside and Sunnyvale, it turns out that Sam is actually a girl, Olivia Scott Welch, and she moved from Shadyside to Sunnyvale, and this is one of the reasons why this couple broke up. But the rivalry between these two football teams gets out of hand and ends in a fight. And when the Shady Side football team, with Keanu Madeira, who plays in the band, get on the bus, they're involved in a car accident in which Sam is injured and her blood gets involved under a particular tree and suddenly the curse of the witch has been unleashed. The urban legend is the reason why Shadyside is such a bad place to live is it was cursed by a witch named Sarah Fear back in the 17th century and ever since Shadyside has been the worst place to live because it's been living under this curse. And the blood of young Olivia Scott Welch has awakened the witch. And suddenly, all kinds of serial killers are on the loose in Shadyside. 
from various different eras of history and I'm presuming from various different Fear Street books. I mean, there's a young girl from the 1960s. There's somebody who's only just committed murder and was shot by cops and is suddenly back to life. And the girl he murders in the opening scene is actually played by Maya Hawke, daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman and star of Stranger Things. So that's kind of a, a scream kind of thing of big name actress gets killed in the first scene. But that guy comes back almost instantly. There's somebody who went on a rampage at the summer camp in 1978, and we'll be seeing that in the next film, but he shows up killing people as well. I mean, all these different serial killers from all different periods of history are showing up, and they want Olivia Scott Welch, Keanu Madeira, and their friends dead. So can they survive the night, and can they persuade the small-town sheriff and the small-town mayor that something is up? And, yeah, I mean, I think this is a pretty standard, pretty generic teen slasher film, very much in the 90s vein of things like I Know What You Did Last Summer or Scream, evoking that kind of aesthetic, albeit you probably wouldn't have had a lesbian protagonist in the 90s, but that was a nice little twist. And a kind of an interesting piece of misdirection having this girl pining for Sam and then Sam turning out to be Samantha which would have been fine apart from the fact that as well as being categorised as a horror film on Netflix it's also been categorised as an LGBT film on Netflix so I actually kind of saw that one coming but yeah it's pretty basic pretty standard stuff and very very short make you understand this is set in the 90s we have 20 second blasts of so many tracks and bands from the 90s Porter's head white zombie garbage nine inch nails there are so many quick blasts of 90s music to make absolutely sure you know what era this is taking place in there's a gag about Keanu Madeira's younger brother, Benjamin Flores, being an internet geek. And an internet geek in 1994 is somebody who uses a dial-up modem to go into AOL chat rooms, which is incredibly expensive. And he's the one who knows all the history, all the lore about Sarah Fear, this witch from the 17th century, which we will be seeing in the third film. And he's the one who knows what's going on. So, yeah, it's pretty basic, pretty standard stuff. Towards the end, there are some extremely gory moments. I mean, excessively gory moments, which I'm not sure were quite justified or quite earned. And when you're watching at home in a relatively well-lit living room, it doesn't quite have the same impact is if you were sitting in a darkened cinema screen with dozens of other people reacting to that extreme gore simultaneously. But there's some extreme gore towards the end of it. So, yeah, not necessarily my kind of taste. But, yeah, the ideas presented are reasonably clever. The way you 
knit together various different stories from various different eras is reasonably clever. The exposition comes from somebody called C. Berman, who at the final scenes of the film is revealed to be Gillian Jacobs. And she was a survivor of the Camp Nightwing massacre in 1978, which is going to be the second film in this trilogy. And the fact she's only described as C. Berman. And one of the things she says is, my sister didn't survive makes me think that there's going to be some question as to which sister is which, because I'm betting both of them have the initial C, so we don't know which sister is going to survive. But anyway, Gillian Jacobs is apparently part of Fear Street Part 2 1978, which is coming this coming Friday. And yeah, I'm going to be watching it. I think it's entertaining enough. I mean, yes, it's generic. Yes, it's nothing we haven't seen before. It knows exactly which buttons to push. I have my fingers crossed that the second film in this trilogy is going to evoke 1970s slasher films, very much like the first one evokes 1990s slasher films. So it's going to be much more Friday the 13th rather than Scream. But I don't have much hope. I think this is going to end up being a relatively generic series of slasher films but entertaining nonetheless so fear street part one 1994 is a decent enough film and for me it is a solid meh but i think that rating is subject to change because this is the first part of a trilogy and i think this is one of those things we might have to evaluate as an entire five hour or so experience rather than as three individual films so we're gonna have to see how it goes but for right now as an individual film it's a solid reasonably unoriginal meh coming attractions the big cinematic film this week is actually already out as i'm recording this because it was given an early Wednesday release. It is perhaps the biggest blockbuster that was delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. The latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Black Widow, in which Scarlett Johansson deals with her tragic past and family dynamics by the look of it, which seems a little bit odd. And yeah. I can't say I'm massively interested in a Black Widow film as far as the MCU goes, but I am glad that finally we have an MCU film with a female main protagonist. But anyway, Kevin Feige has issues, which I've said many times over the years, but I am still very curious to see Black Widow. And because Black Widow is out, very, very little else is being released to compete with it. There are two other cinematic films I'm curious to see next week, neither of which are very convenient to get to. Firstly is a Finnish film called Tove, which is a biopic of Tove Jansen, who 
created the Moomins. It stars Alma Poisty as Tove Jansen, a struggling artist in 1940s Helsinki, who is a struggling artist with an unconventional marriage, an open marriage, and is inspired to actually put pen to paper and create the Moomin books, which he has been doodling for years, by a relationship with a woman, played by Krista Kossinen, who was the dominatrix in the excellent Finnish film from last year, Dogs Don't Wear Pants. So, this open relationship with this famous artist brings forth one of the most beloved children's books in history. Although, not to me personally, I have to say, I never really appreciated the moments. It was never something that particularly appealed to me. But I am curious to see the unconventional life of Tove Jansen as portrayed in this film. So I will be checking that out at the cinema this week. And the other film I want to be checking out is another film I was mildly disappointed I didn't manage to see before the Oscar ceremony because it was on the long list for documentary feature at the Oscars this year and did win the Audience Award for Documentaries at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. It's called The Truffle Hunters and, unsurprisingly, is about truffle hunters. In the Piedmont area of northern Italy, these are old men who go out with their pigs into the woods and hunt for alba truffles. The very rare, very expensive fungi which have completely defied everybody's attempts to cultivate them, so they need to be literally rooted out by these pigs in northern Italy and sold by these eccentric old men who make a living just wandering the woods with pigs. And it sounds rather picturesque, rather sedate, and kind of what the world needs right now. So yes, I do want to check out the documentary The Truffle Hunters. I still have a couple of films stored up on my tablet from that most recent sale on the Google Play Store. Elise, Anthony Hopkins, starring in his wife's latest psychological thriller, and Dr. Bird's Advice for Sad Poets. A quirky young man listens to advice from a talking pigeon. I also want to check out Dinner in America. The Unconventional Romance Slash Road Movie and The Greenhouse, the Australian film about a woman desperate to live in the past and basically travelling in time every time she walks through this greenhouse. Looks like it might be interesting. I still want to check out the movie released film Shiva Baby about a young Jewish woman standing shiver with her ex-girlfriend and the man who is currently her sugar daddy. So that could be awkward and Jewish and fun. I do want to check out the weepy girl on Amazon, Our Friend, about a woman dying of cancer and her husband struggling to cope until their goofy friend shows up and starts living with them. 
And released onto Sky Cinema next week is another one of those films that I was mildly interested in when it was released streaming earlier in the year, but I certainly didn't want to pay a premium price for it, which is how it was initially released. But now it is available on Sky Cinema. I probably will be checking out Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which is written and stars Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, who are the people who created Bridesmaids. Annie Mumolo was the writer of Bridesmaids. She had a, a brief cameo appearance in it, but apparently here she stars in it alongside Kristen Wiig as two awkward and loud women who go on vacation together. I mean, judging by the trailer, it's a lot of awkward humour and cringe-inducing humour, so perhaps not my particular tastes, but I am curious enough that now I don't have to pay for it at all, I probably will check out Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. On Netflix, I do want to check out the Indian film about young girls finding empowerment through skateboarding in Skater Girl, the documentary Hating Peter Tatchell, the feminist historical horror film Tragic Jungle, in which a group of rubber tappers in the Mexican-Belize jungle border come across a woman who has run away from an arranged marriage in the early 20th century and potentially tries to exploit her, but there are supernatural forces around them. I also want to check out the Indonesian film Ali and Ratu Ratu Queens, about a teenage Indonesian boy who travels to Queens, New York, in order to track down his long-estranged mother, who moved to the States when he was a baby and finds a new community and new life in New York. I do want to check out the Eliza Schlesinger autobiographical comedy Good on Paper, about a relationship she formed with a man who turned out to be a complete liar and was the cornerstone of her stand-up routine about eight years ago. I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can find stand-up routines of Eliza Schlesinger talking about this guy. But yeah, she made a film about it and that got released onto Netflix. I'm also curious about the Italian film Security, based on a novel by the same guy who did Human Capital. A young woman in an affluent neighbourhood accuses somebody of rape, and perhaps not coincidentally, her father is then accused of paedophilia, and is the rich community closing ranks and protecting their own. Perhaps only the security guard who has been hired to look at all the CCTV footage can uncover the truth. So that sounds like a, a complex moral quandary kind of film. There's also the outrageous adult animation from some of the people who did Archer, America, the motion picture, in which various historical people like George Washington and Geronimo and Thomas Edison and Sam Adams basically get turned into the Avengers and start fucking shit up in the American War of Independence. And lots of swearing, lots of anachronisms, lots of rah-rah, isn't America great kind of stuff. Looks like it might be kind of satirical, but equally it looks like it might just be boorish and dull. But I am still curious about America, the motion picture. There's also a Polish film called Primetime, 
New Year's Eve 1999, an armed young man goes into a television studio and demands that as the millennium counts down, he wants his message read out over the Polish television airwaves. Starring Bartosz Bielana from Corpus Christi, so that could be kind of cool. There's also, of course, Fear Street Part 2 1978, dealing with the Camp Nightwing massacre which Gillian Jacobs was apparently a part of. So lots of 70s slasher fun in that Fear Street franchise, and curious how this whole thing is going to be knitted together. And also new onto Netflix this week is a couple of films which ask interesting questions about what a comic book movie is and what a superhero movie is, because... There are two films released, one of which is a superhero film which isn't based on a comic book, and one of which is a comic book adaptation which isn't about superheroes. There's the Russian film Major Grom, Plague Doctor, and Major Grom is apparently a long-running Russian comic book. Grom is basically Thunder, so it's Major Thunder, who is a police detective in St. Petersburg who has to deal with all kinds of outlandish stuff. And this is apparently based on one of the most successful runs of this Russian comic book, in which somebody dresses up as a plague doctor with that long-beaked mask and starts crazing anarchy, and Major Grom is the only one who can stop him. So, yeah, not necessarily a superhero movie, but based on a comic book which is the opposite of the French film How I Became a Superhero, which is set in a world where superpowers are real and are apparently caused by a drug. So it's a little bit like that American film from last year, Project Power. This is a French version where people are taking this drug, turning themselves into superheroes and becoming supervillains. And a hard-working detective is trying to track them down and stop them, but he doesn't have superpowers, so how is he going to do it? So, yeah, that could be fun as well. And there's also The Waterman, which is the feature film directorial debut of David Ayelowo. And it looks like a little bit of a variation on the film from a couple of years back, A Monster Calls with a young boy dealing with grief in a somewhat supernatural way. Or well, it seems to be that's what the trailer is pointing in the direction of. A young family, David Yellowo and Rosario Dawson, move to a small rural town with their son, Lonnie Chavis. But Rosario Dawson is ill, possibly even dying. So when... Young Lonnie Chavis hears a local urban legend about a man who lives out in the woods, an immortal man who lives out in the woods called the Waterman, who can cure illness. He sets off on a quest to find the Waterman and save his ill mother. And he is taken on this quest by local homeless girl, or seemingly homeless girl, Amia Miller. So these two kids go off on adventure into the woods in order to find the Waterman and potentially save Rosario Dawson's life. 
And judging by the trailer, it does have a lot of a monster cause about it, with this young boy searching for this supernatural entity in order to deal with his own grief and his own questions about his mother's imminent death or certainly illness. And yeah, I mean, I'm as I repeatedly say, I'm always fascinated when a director steps behind the camera and chooses to direct. I mean, what a person chooses to direct, what projects he chooses, whether they choose to direct themselves. I mean, yes, David Yellowo is in it, and apparently also his wife, Jessica Yellowo, is in it as well. So making that decision and, and having this big epic quest movie rather than a small intimate film i mean yeah it's a curious thing that david yellowo chose to do but he did it and i'm very very interested in it i mean not only because i I am curious about actors starting to direct but also the film itself sounds really really fascinating so i do want to check out the waterman on netflix as well so a long long list of stuff that i do want to get to and some of that will be in the next standard episode of yay nay or ma with any luck i will have to fit that in around england being in the final of the euro 2020 championships i'm recording this a few hours before the england versus denmark semi-final so Fingers crossed England will be facing Italy in the final of Euro 2020. So I'm going to have to fit my cinema watching in and around that. But in any case, something will be coming fairly shortly in the next standard episode. At the very least, I'll be reviewing the cinematic films Black Widow, Tove and The Truffle Hunters. And until then, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay or Mare presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>